Thank you guys for those beautiful songs. Thank you, Jason, for uh, selecting such wonderful songs today. Um, yes, we are talking about what does the believer do when the pressure is on? When there's worldly and satanic pressure, how does the believer live? Now, how'd you like to be sitting in the congregation if this guy's preaching? Looks pretty intense, doesn't he? He led the league in eyebrow intensity back in the day. Yes, this is John Nelson Darby. He was famed for being the founder of the so-called Plymouth Brethren movement. Very interesting story. He was born into wealth in the UK. His father selected the study of law for his career, and so off he went to college to study law. But at the end of his law studies, he had an encounter with the Lord Jesus and became a believer and turned his attention to the Bible and to the Christian life. In fact, he never did practice law. Within a few months of his conversion, having finished his law studies, he had prepared for all of the interviews and tests relative to becoming an Anglican clergyman. He was born into Anglicanism in the UK. And so um, within a year of his conversion and his completion of legal studies, he was assigned to pastor a small town church up in the hills of Ireland. And by all accounts, for a couple of years, there was a faithful young pastor to these rural people. He was studying, he was preaching, he was caring for the people. And then one day he was on his horse, and his horse kind of bucked, and he was bashed against the side of a house and sustained some rather severe injuries. So he spent the next several months at the home of his sister and brother-in-law in Dublin, Ireland, where he was recuperating from his injuries. And during that period, he made a fresh and intense study of the New Testament. He had been growing somewhat disillusioned with Anglicanism, with all of its bishops and archbishops and clergyism and class distinctions and liturgies and so on and so forth. And as he studied the New Testament, he saw something different. He saw just uh, believers very simply gathering together studying the word, breaking bread, and exhorting one another to live in light of the Lord's soon return. He never went back to his pastorate, and he never went back to Anglicanism. When he recovered from his injuries, he began to meet with just a few like-minded brethren for a simple Sunday meeting of studying the word, breaking bread, and exhorting one another to give all for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that became his life's work for some 50 plus years. He became an itinerant Bible teaching, church planting, church founding preacher, teacher. He began to found like-minded assemblies, as he called them, all across the UK, eventually becoming a very brilliant Bible student. He mastered Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Then he began to cross the channel, went over to France, Switzerland, Italy, Germany, 
planted assemblies there, began to master all of those languages. Eventually he could preach in Italian, German, and French, as well as English. And for some decades, this is what he did, even coming to the U.S. He came to the U.S. several times, teaching, preaching, teaching these simple principles of the brethren gathering together, studying the word, breaking bread, living in light of the Lord's return. Spent a considerable amount of time, for example, in Chicago and Illinois back in the 1800s. And so he just traveled constantly. You know, he never owned a home until he was into his 50s. And by all accounts, he, he lived what he taught. In fact, at a young age, when he was about 30 years old, he fell in love with a godly young woman. They discussed marriage and they agreed mutually that he should not marry in order that it might be a hindrance to his traveling and his teaching and his church planting and so forth. And thus, uh, he remained single and never married. Became a great teacher of the Christian life. Uh, one time he was asked a question. Why is it that one believer appears to be more spiritual than another? And here was his answer. The higher the acknowledgement of Christ the more spiritual energy in going through this world and overcoming it. If one believer is more spiritual than another, it is because he understands the person of Christ better. It all goes back to Christ. And I think, brothers and sisters, that the ancient writer of the letter of Hebrews was really facing this kind of a question. As I look at this local congregation that I'm concerned about, that I have a pastoral regard for, why is it that some are growing neglectful? Why is it that some want to turn back? Why, is it, why are these distinctions? And really, he makes the same point that Darby makes. The whole book of Hebrews is about looking at the Lord Jesus. Look at him who he is and what he did. And if you make much of the Lord Jesus, you will not weaken when the pressure is on. You will not turn back when the pressure is on. The whole book of Hebrews is all about this. Chapter 1, he is superior to angels. Chapter 2, he is superior to the prophets. Chapter 3, he is superior to Moses. Chapter 4, he is superior to the high priest. And on it goes, superior to all that the Old Testament reveals. And dear Hebrews, you must once again, while the pressure is on you and you are weakening, you must once again consider him. Because he consecrated himself to you. And you must consecrate himself to him. So we come to chapter 12 in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now remember, these Hebrews were under pressure. The author had written about struggling against sufferings, and 
reproach and affliction, confiscation of property. He even warned that the struggle might yet be to the point of shedding of their blood. So it was real. And he was concerned because some were growing neglectful. Some had unbelieving hearts, were dull of hearing, were in danger of falling away from the Christian faith and returning to the synagogue and back to Judaism. Some were neglecting to meet together, and even he puts it this way, that they would be trampling underfoot the Son of God were they to do this, profaning the blood of Christ, refusing him who speaks. So with pastoral concern, he's worried about where this might go. They were weakening and in danger of forsaking their profession of Jesus Christ. And so we learned last time that the writer was teaching them that in the midst of the pressure, we must cling to the Lord Jesus. Hold fast our profession. We must cry out to him. We have a sympathetic high priest who is in the th on the throne of God, willing to give mercy and grace that we might receive well-timed help in our struggles. So today we want to move on to this third exhortation found here in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. That when the pressure is on, we must consecrate ourselves to the Lord Jesus. going to be two points there. I'm going to start with verse 2 and say he consecrated himself to us. And then I'm going to move to verse 1. So we must consecrate ourselves to him. So I, yes, I have inverted the points here relative to the verses. And you might say, Pastor Jeff, are you allowed to do that? And I will say, you know, it's my sermon. I can do it if I want. <laughs> so this is the way we shall do it. And under this first point that he consecrated himself to us, I want to make three sub-points here. That he consecrated himself to us in his life, in his death, and in his exaltation. So, the Lord does not want us turning back when the pressure is on. He doesn't want us to turn back, but to press on. He doesn't want us to burn out, but to burn on. How are we going to do that? By considering again the Lord Jesus and how he consecrated himself to us. First of all, in his life, verse 2, it's kind of a grand summary statement here of the whole life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, where he is said to be the founder and perfecter of our faith, or as the old translation said, the author and finisher of our faith. That he is all, as founder, he is the one who initiated the idea of the Christian faith and the Christian hope, the reality of salvation through his blood. He's the perfecter. He is the one who did all things to bring this work to completion. He is the one who accomplished all that is necessary for us to know God, to love God, to serve God, to be reconciled to God, to receive eternal life. He is the one who supplanted all of the way of the Old Testament. He finished the work on the cross. He said, it is finished. And that barrier between God and man is removed through the life of Jesus, his incarnation, his coming into the world, his life, his work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, 
He came into this world totally consecrated to that purpose, to receive and redeem sinners. He was also consecrated to us in his death. There's special mention of his death here, that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Uh, you know, the event of the cross, as we look at the Gospels, so much of the Gospels are made up of that story because it is the climax of the testimony of Jesus Christ when he came into this world, that he would die a humiliation for us, a death reserved for the worst offenders, and he set aside any concern with that and did not exempt himself from the full measure of earthly suffering. Why? Well, the Bible says here in verse 2 that he was focused on the joy set before him. What was that joy? The joy was the receiving of the reward of his suffering, the winning of sinners. Do you realize that you, as a believer, are the reward of Jesus' suffering? That he had sinners in mind as he lived, as he died, as he rose, as he ascended, as he was exalted into heaven. In his suffering, he saw the glorious fruits of redemption, and thereby that shame, that humiliation, that pain, that agony was a secondary thing to him. And in this we say the Lord Jesus was consecrated to us. And that he came with a distinct and powerful purpose. He didn't come just through the world, like some say, just to be a good teacher, like he was some Buddha or some Confucius. He was the Son of God who came to live, to suffer, to die, to rise, to claim sinners as the reward of his suffering. He was consecrated to us. Now this guy is Evan Shabet. He's from Kenya. He won the Boston Marathon this year. I know that because I took second. <laughs> Not really. Uh, he won the Boston Marathon last year. He won the New York City Marathon this year also. And I think if you look at a guy like that, you realize that when he goes out to run, he's not out for a jog. The best distance runner in the world. A competitive man. He said after the race, in a marathon, you know anything can happen. It's a strong field, and so everybody is there to race. Yes, he is there to race. He had a purpose. And when the Lord Jesus came into the world, he had a purpose. He was singularly focused on that purpose. One commentator captured it this way. Jesus did not run the race of faith for the pleasure of the race. He did not leave his Father's presence in his heavenly glory and endure temptation and the opposition of Satan and suffer ridicule, scorn, blasphemy, torture, and crucifixion by his enemies for the sake of some personal pleasure or satisfaction. He was motivated by something immeasurably more than this. He was consecrated to us, to the sinners he would reclaim. And thus he died for others. He ran for others, for you and for me. He was consecrated to us in his life and in his death. And thirdly, in his exaltation. Now it goes on to say he is seated at 
the right hand of God, risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he presented his own blood, his sacrifice, the marks of his suffering still upon his resurrected body, and there he stood before God, piercing the veil between this world and that world, and said, it is finished. I have died for sinners and risen again in the very throne room of God. And then he sat down, and there he remains, seated upon that throne, where he simply continues his mediatorial work for us, interceding for us, continually pleading his blood that never loses his power to justify us. Listen, brethren, we all feel bad about our sins, but do you realize the Lord Jesus is continually pleading his blood for our sins at the right hand of God. His work is finished. That's why he sat down. I want to make a big deal out of that this morning. He sat down. There's nothing more for him to do. There's nothing more he could add to what he had already done. There's nothing I can add, nothing you can add to what he has done. It's all of Jesus and his consecration to sinners to save us. If there was something more to be done, he would be up and doing it. But in his incarnation, in his life, in his suffering, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his exaltation to glory, he has done all to purchase us from sin, death, and hell, and ever lives to make intercession for us. Like we sang this morning, for my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Yes, he will. Do you realize this, dear friend, that all that he did in his life, in his death, in his exaltation was to win you? Have you allowed yourself to be one to him forever? That's why he came. And we simply open the door of our hearts and believe and receive. And he becomes our savior forever. He did all that with us in mind and was totally consecrated to us and persevered through all the work that he had to do. And then he sat down. I like that. I like sitting down. This is like an old easy chair here, you know. Looks a little rough, but I bet you right now as you are sitting on those uncomfortable church chairs, you would take this chair right here. Over the years, you know, I've had some tiring days just like you. I found pastoral work to be sometimes kind of tiring. I mean, it's not digging ditches or hewing logs, but you can have some uh, days when you're tired. You're emotionally spent. Twice in my pastoral career, I remember having a wedding and a funeral on the same day. That's called emotional whiplash. Yeah, you need a counselor for that to get over that one. I mean, it's exhausting. Numerous times, I'm kind of ashamed to say this, I recall having leadership meetings till past midnight. What were we doing? What were we thinking? If you were at some of those meetings, I apologize to you. I wish I'd have went home earlier. Tiring. You know, church events kind of used to tire me out, you know, planning, executing the event. Sometimes you have to be the first one there and the last one to leave. I was just looking this past week at the spreadsheet that Justin sent out concerning our church picnic coming up next month and all, everything that has to be taken care of and everything he has to organize. I just say, poor Justin, man. 
Better him than me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and thank all of you who will have a part in making that happen because, man, there's a lot of work there. So I remember some days going home, tired, and I would fall into that chair. I'm in my chair now. That's it. Sometimes I'd have to kick a kid out of it first, you know. But there I would sit. I'm finished. Do you get the point? In his exaltation, the Lord Jesus sat down because there was nothing more for him to do. His work was finished. Nothing he could add. He had lived. He had suffered. He had died. He had risen. He had ascended. He had presented his blood before Almighty God in the throne room of heaven. He had consecrated himself totally to this. Are we to turn back from such a Savior as that? Dear Hebrews, dear weakening Hebrews, have you considered again who he is and what he did? Will you put this into your mind again? And in our own day, in these trying days, can we see beyond the rages of the evil man in our world, those who seek to reproach and frustrate and accuse and blaspheme and lie? Look at the Lord Jesus. Is he not worthy of our faithfulness? Did he not consecrate himself to us? And should we not consecrate ourselves to him? As we look at him, should we not be fearless in this world? As we look at him, don't we ask ourselves the question, to whom am I going to go? What else can I turn to in this world? He consecrated himself to us. That's verse 2. Now, let's look at verse 1. And what we are going to say is that we must therefore consecrate ourselves to him. I want to give you four points from verse 1. So this is the third exhortation here. Cling to Jesus, cry out to Jesus, consecrate to Jesus. It captures the spirit of the book of Hebrews to these believers who are weakening under the pressure. So here the Christian life is compared to a race. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before him. That's the true challenge. So how do we consecrate himself, ourselves to him? By living up to the true challenge, which is to follow him all of our days. This is the challenge of discipleship. Through this evil world, not running any old race, not running our own race, but running that race of the upward call unto God through Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a very much a pleasure-seeking, self-seeking, self-affirming age. It's tempting to concoct our own race according to our own rules. But this is the life of faith, the life of discipleship, the life of perseverance, the life of faithfulness, the life that every biblical character we study was called to, the life that every born-again Christian is called to begins with the new birth and it ends with our departure to glory. And all the way 
In the in-between time, it's a contest of dependence on the Lord, communion with the Lord, obedience to the Lord, standing with the Lord, standing for the Lord, trusting in the Lord through all the pressures. It's a fight all the way. We always want to get some rest, you know. We'll rest when we get to heaven, believe me. We enter God's rest, chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. Now we are in the race, and we're called to persevere in that race. Run with endurance, run well. So this is the challenge, to run with steadfastness, consistency, perseverance, faithfulness to Jesus. That's the one and only acceptable goal of the believer. You know, it's, it's a lot harder to finish than it is to start, isn't it? I mean, we start things, but it's easy to start. It's hard to finish. And sometimes we are starting and problems come and failures come and we get weak. We get discouraged. We lose heart. But here we are to see that as the Lord was consecrated to us, we are to be consecrated to him and run the race with endurance all the way to the end. Here's the great William Carey. He was going out to India from the Midlands of England in 1793. Went out all by himself, just his wife, and had a terrible time there. Struggled in those early years. For seven years, he had zero converts. Few helpers finally joined him. His wife, however, fell into mental illness. The British government did not want him there. They tried to shut him down many times. He buried two wives in India. He was ordered out of the country, fought against that. He was ordered to shut his schools and his printing presses. One time, all of his printing presses were burned to the ground. But he kept on, he persevered, he remained his whole life. He never came home to England, not even one time. He founded a college that's still there today. He translated the Bible into 30 languages. And this was an ordinary man. You know, he was a small town pastor in England who was bivocational. He made his living repairing shoes. Just a humble, ordinary man. I mean, I've studied him. I would say he was kind of a dull guy, actually. He was kind of a bookworm and scholarly in nature. But his father said about him when he was a boy, an insightful remark, whatever he begins, he finishes. That's the idea. It's a powerful idea. It's a simple idea. The true calling of every believer to run the race with endurance. Have you accepted that challenge, my brother, my sister? Young people, have you accepted that challenge? That is not just for this week or next week, but all the way until Jesus calls us home, we're going to consecrate ourselves to him. We're going to be faithful. I know the Lord loves me. But I'm going to love him back all of my days. Secondly, we have to line up with the witnesses. Now, we got kind of a therefore here. It goes back to chapter 11. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. 
There have been so many who have lived faithfully unto God. The Bible is filled with them. We have a narrative there in chapter 11 of Hebrews, starting with the ancient times, working its way all the way through Israel, all of the prophets, all of the patriarchs, all of these examples of these who were ordinary people but helped by God to persevere, to endure, to be faithful to the Lord. That's why we study the word. To learn of these examples. A great throng of them. And they weren't perfect. You can go through that list. you find a blemish or two on every single one of them probably. But they were faithful. They labored. They persevered. They prayed. They endured. They saw God do amazing things for them as they were faithful unto him. That's why I've always enjoyed reading Christian biography. You know, I've... I've read a lot of missionary biography, a lot of pastoral biographies. One time I was reading a biography by a pastor from New York City named John Henry Jowett, born in 1863, and the author was given a sketch of his personality, and I was saying to myself, man, this guy is exactly like me. And I didn't mean it as a compliment, believe me. What I saw was this guy was so weak in so many ways, in very similar ways to myself, But I saw that he hung in there, he persevered, and he had a fruitful ministry. So we line up with these witnesses. That's why we study the word. Today more than ever, as we see the world going AWOL from the word of God, we study the word all the more. That we might learn how to live not from the waywardness of the world, but from the witnesses of the word. Line up with the witnesses. Thirdly, lighten the load. Now, there's a t- the term for race here is the term for agon, which means agony. That is a strenuous race with many opponents. We're contending with the world, contending with the devil, we're contending with lies and blasphemies. And so what are we to do? He says, lay aside all that hinders and the sin which entangles. Now this first word is a term for encumbrances or hindrances, impediments. You know, like the track athlete, I used to like to go to track meets and the track athlete will will strip down and take off the bulky outer clothing so they can really run. You're not going to run the race with all this heavy material on you that can trip you up. And so we ask ourselves the question from time to time, what might be hindering me from being faithful to the Lord Jesus? doesn't necessarily have to be a terrible overt sin can be something which is just getting in the way, something we'd be better off to lay that aside, that our faithfulness might be encouraged. But then he gets into the sin, he says, which entangles, which trips us up, which thwarts us, which sidelines us, which works against our devotion to Jesus. What sins might be in my life, that if I would lay them aside, I could really run. We should all try that sometime. Sometimes we look at our lives and say, why am I sluggish? 
Why am I disinterested in the things of God? Why am I apathetic? Why am I cold? Why won't I serve? Why can't I run like I know I should run? Have we considered that there may be some things that need to be laid aside? Entanglements and sins. Lay them aside. Are we willing to ask God? Are we willing to ask God? Show me, God, what might be hindering me. Here's the ancient pastor, Augustine. He was converted at the age of 31. His Christian mother prayed for him for many, many years. But for many years, he followed the wayward path of his pagan father, lived a life of unbelief and selfish ambition and immoral choices. He fathered a child out of wedlock. He lived with a woman outside of marriage for many years, which he later called, listen to this, a bargain struck for lust. <laughs> it's a pretty good way to describe cohabitation. A bargain struck for lust. He had a way with words. Well, anyway, he received a new appointment, and he went from North Africa up to Milan. And in Milan, there was a famous Christian preacher there named Ambrose. And Augustine was interested in public speaking and charisma and such things. And so he went out to listen to Ambrose preach to make a study of how he connected with the audience and how his charisma came through and the rhetorical skills that he had. And he enjoyed it. So he began to return again and again. And unbeknownst to him, he was hearing the gospel. And then as time went on, the gospel became very, very clear to him. But he resisted it. And then one day, he decided he would read the New Testament. That's always a dangerous idea. And when he was reading the book of Romans one day, and he was suddenly born again of the Spirit, he read these words, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. He realized, just sort of in an instant, that if he wanted to believe and follow Jesus, he would have to lay aside the life he was living. That he couldn't live unto Jesus with his immoral enjoyments, his pleasures of the flesh, his pride, his sin, his ambition. And suddenly and finally, he cast it off, he laid it aside. And after that, he really ran. He became probably the greatest scholar, pastor of the early church period. He's read widely even unto this day. And so, yes, as we think about our consecration to the Lord Jesus, we do ask ourselves this question from time to time. What might be hindering me from running like the Lord wants me to run, what might be hindering me from consecrating myself to him as he consecrated himself to me? What is it? What if I laid it aside, I could really run? What is it that dulls the fire? And then, as Augustine did, yield and consecrate to him afresh. So we lighten the load as we consecrate ourselves. And finally, one last thought. We look unto Jesus. We sang that song this morning, Come, gaze upon him. Yes, throughout the whole book of Hebrews, 
The writer is saying, dear Hebrews, look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Meditate upon Jesus. Because as we do so, we will see that he's worthy of our consecration. Think about all that we have said about him in these, just these two, two weeks together. He's our great high priest who loves us with mercy and grace. That he gave his life. He died on the cross. He was exalted into heaven. He finished all for us. You know, it's tempting for us to be looking at the wrong thing. Sometimes we're looking at the world. And as we look at the world, we get fearful. Or we get angry. Sometimes we're looking at ourselves and we're saying, you know, I'm just not that strong. I'm just not that kind of person. Sometimes we're looking at other people and we say, well, I, I can't live like that person. I, I just don't have it. You're looking at the wrong thing. The wrong thing. Look at Jesus. Make a study of Jesus. Our great and loving high priest in the throne room of heaven who is keeping us and sympathizing with us, loving us, having done all for us, having been consecrated to us. He sat down and he's waiting for us to come there to be with him. And in the meantime, he's pleading for us, not forgetting us even for one minute. And as we look at him, we realize that he is worthy of our consecration. And we live up to that challenge. We line up with the witnesses. We lighten the load. We look to Jesus. And then we run with endurance. Not weakening, not turning back. Where else are we going to go? And thus we consecrate ourselves to the Lord Jesus. There was a pastor's wife. And she served alongside her husband for many, many years in pastoring. He finally got old and passed away. She grew old herself, and she decided to make a trip to London, where her daughter was in a ministry there, part of a team ministering to Indian women in the city of London. And she got out there, and she kind of fell in step with what her daughter was doing, began to help out. She had some gifts in hospitality and outreach. And she began to befriend some of these Indian women, began to pray with them, began to have Bible studies with them. And uh, ultimately decided to stay right there and join this team. Um, brothers and sisters, this is a woman with 24 grandchildren and 54 great-grandchildren. Now, if you have 54 great-grandchildren, you are no spring chicken. But here, in the habit of this life of consecration, alongside her husband, serving the Lord, she just goes over to London and just continues on in the same devotion to the Lord Jesus. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying to this weakening flock. Hey, we're in a race. It's one you have to run with endurance. It's a hard race. There are temptations, there are opposition, trials, enemies, pressure. But don't weaken. Don't find an easier way. Don't turn back. Look unto Jesus. Did he not consecrate his all to us? Look at him. And then, how can we not consecrate ourselves to him?
Let's pray together. We do thank you, Lord, for the mighty consecration we see of the Lord Jesus to us, whereby he gave all to save us, to keep us, to love us, to care for us, to pour out mercies and grace upon us. Thus, Lord, in these days of challenge, make us strong for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.